Okay, stop everything right now. You have to go on Instagram and check out Barbie Savior. Um, it's at Savior Barbie. Um, Jesus, adventures, Africa, two worlds, one love, babies, beauty, not qualified, called, <laughs> 20 years young. It's not about me, but it kind of is. And it's a fabulous Instagram account parodying white savior complex in, uh, I guess, sub-Saharan Africa. Mostly, yeah. It doesn't It doesn't really matter where it is. Because it's she's making a difference. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like legitimate. It's amazing. But describe like one of the pictures because they're hilarious. Um, so there's a picture of her at a chalkboard. Um, and her being a Barbie doll. Her being a Barbie doll um, <laughs> in like a school in Africa. Um, the country of Africa. The country of Africa. <laughs> who is saying, like, who needs a formal education to teach in Africa? And there are always these fabulous hashtags that are things like hashtag getting schooled and overruled, hashtag Barbie Savior the Educator, hashtag they teach more than I teach them. Um, yeah. Classic. Like, literally, probably. Oh, that's great. I love it. Hello and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachiko Sasseri. In this episode, we're talking about transnational activism, going from the global north, places like America, Canada, and Western Europe, into other countries to try to help improve the life there for those less fortunate than ourselves. 100% a good idea, right? Maybe not so much. It turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. Even when activists from wealthy countries have the best of intentions, they can end up forcing their own cultural beliefs on others in insensitive or disruptive ways. At the same time, their very presence as aid in those countries can perpetuate international power dynamics that are unequal. So does this mean that like everything is relative and we should all just stay in our home countries and leave each other alone? Or do the practical outcomes of international activism and aid outweigh the potential costs? To get into these hefty questions, we are so super excited to talk with Dr. Brian Richard Thorson, a human rights lawyer and PhD in anthropology who focuses on international LGBT rights. Brian is also, as you can probably tell, a dear friend of ours um, and just one of the best people in the entire freaking world. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been an in theory evangelist since the first episode, so this is extremely exciting. Woo! Oh my gosh, I'm totally blushing. <laughs> I can't believe he's here. <laughs> I know. Okay. So Ryan is the author of the book Transnational LGBT Activism, Working for Sexual Rights Worldwide, and has worked with a number of sexual rights groups, including Outright Action International and the LGBT Rights Program at Human Rights Watch. So obviously he is both a genius and a wonderful human being who is working to make the world a better place, right? Um, okay, so given this context and everything we've been talking about already, Ryan Dish, tell us about a time when you totally pulled a white savior move. So... <laughs> One of my, like, first experiences in international LGBT activism was at the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. One of my first jobs there was to go to this event where a high-ranking Ugandan official was going to be speaking. Um, and this was right around the time that Uganda was considering the anti-homosexuality bill, which would have sort of cracked down on LGBT people and LGBT activism. Um, and I was supposed to basically convey concern to this official about the bill. And I remember sort of cornering him at this reception conveying concern about the bill and he said something kind of dismissive like I hadn't heard about it but um, it sounds terrible and I wouldn't worry about it too much and I remember afterwards just thinking like great I fixed it and thinking <laughs> that like you know that I had like made this important contribution to like stopping the bill which of course didn't happen because like 
he's this high-ranking Ugandan official, and he's not listening to some, like, random 25-year-old who comes up to the <laughs> cocktail party to, like, stop a major piece of legislation. Um, so that was very disappointing in the weeks that followed when I realized that, like... Oh, well, you're definitely not the only only one. You don't have to be white to make a move like that, for sure. Um, I traveled abroad a ton, and I'd say in college, I... I went to Pakistan, you know, Pakistani origin. My parents were born there and raised there. So I was, you know, I feel really connected. And I worked at a, like a women's shelter that also did policy work and a a bunch of other stuff. They kind of did whatever the funding that was afforded to them told them to do. So I just, I just remember going there and being like, I'm I'm here to help you. (laughs) Like, don't worry. I'm also a Muslim woman. I got this. Oh, and I'm also originally Pakistani. It's just like... There's, like, no particular moment I can point to because the whole thing was just, like, a little embarrassing. A little embarrassing. And I just, like, there's all sorts of different interactions where I was, like, I really was trying to be mindful and respectful and understanding um, that there were, like, nuances and complexities to what was going down that I, as a, you know, like, a really very excitable but, like, very low-skilled <laughs> 21-year-old um, could try to help with. But no matter how aware you are of it, you can still just mess shit up in, in, in that process. So it was – I will say, though, like, it actually was super formative for me because, you know, this was all about me and, like, my journey and, like <laughs> – but it, it actually had a huge impact on my future trajectory, but not without uh, many, many painful moments along the way for, for frankly, the other people that were working with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I totally feel that. Actually, um, your story just reminded me of, like, probably one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life when I was 18. Um, and I was living in Japan. I met this woman, such a sweet woman from the Philippines who had a baby, and she invited me to come back home with her. Yeah. Um, to a kind of rural province in the Philippines. So to help, like, look after the baby on the flight because her husband couldn't travel for work or whatever. And so I got to go with her to this province, which was really beautiful but quite remote. But her family was, you know, pretty well off. They'd sent, you know, a lot of money back and they'd built this, like, solid two-story construction, you know, and they had, like, animals and all kinds of stuff, right? But for me, at 18 years old, it was, like, a really big difference from the first world stuff that I was used to. Yeah. And I tried to be really sensitive and, like, not be weirded out by things that were new, like, you know, not being able to use the water and Mm -hmm. the bathroom being kind of a cup-pouring situation, that kind of thing. But I wrote a letter to a friend describing oh, no. everything. Yeah. Um, I know. And my friend found it and read it. Oh. And we, oh, so, <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Oh, no. And I know. I felt like the worst person on earth. Because I was. Um, yeah, and, but it was also, like you said, it was really formative to see how much it hurt her because how yeah. much her family had, like, gone to an extreme to try to, like, make things super nice for us. Right. Um, and how I was receiving it. It just reminded me that, yeah, like, you can think that you're being, like, so magnanimous, like, going to other countries, like, I was helping her with her baby, you know, but then in reality, like, I was a guest in their country and, yeah. like, being a dick. Yeah. That's real. Really real. I don't know if that counts as white, white savior thinking or I, just I white was... fool. <laughs> I'm not even white, but I was just a fool. <laughs> but I think it's like a whole mentality, right? Like yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah. It's about privilege. It's about how diplomacy acting on the inside and on the outside. Like what you actually hope the end game is, like treating other people with respect, like... And what you expect the norm to be in the yeah, world, right? Totally. That somehow what you grew up with or what you experienced, like, is or should be the kind of standard yeah. for the rest of the yeah. world. When that isn't necessarily what everybody even wants. Totally. 
And I guess to some extent you have to be prepared and respectful, but I also think the younger age at which you can have interactions with people who are really different than you or just different life just spaces, it is really good. You just may be ill-prepared to be appropriately respectful or understand the nuances. Yeah, and there's also also the egotism of age too, right? Like when I was like 20... I also felt like the world revolved around me, sort of like geography aside. And like, I think some of that is like, especially comes out when you're traveling as like a younger person and trying to make a difference. Totally true. So a lot of white or Western savior thinking comes from the idea that human values are universal, that what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong, and that we should pitch in and and really um, move the world towards what's right. But in the early 1900s, anthropologists Franz Boas and his students like Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict began to talk about cultural relativism. This is the idea that there's no such hard and fast rule for all of humanity and that we have to be sensitive to each culture's traditions and norms. Yeah, so it's kind of like what we were just talking about. I think it's now spread widely. So a lot of people do think about like, well, my culture's norms aren't the same as everyone else's. And yet all of us have these stories where we feel like we are in a position to help or judge, even though we were like young and useless. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I think, and I think there's like certain like pressure points or pain points where like it doesn't, when I think of like the one issue where like I I see like global discourse and like really like that's really really polarized around this. I think of FGM and female like genital I, mutilation. Yeah, female ge- genital mutilation. I mean, I just like I have strong feelings about it, but like I know a lot of people do, and it's um, it, yeah, it's one of those topics where you ask some people, it's totally like universal value mm. that would be against it, and then other people are like, stop denying our agency. It's so mm-hmm. real. Yeah. I mean, do you have a thought on it? Yeah. Like, it's terrible. I, I feel really strongly about like, it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think it's a cultural practice that is um, deeply destructive. Plenty of people will point to me and be like, that's bad. <laughs> well, it's a, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a discussion that my partner and I have had about having kids, too, where he's yeah. like, I think that, like, male circumcision is terrible. And, yeah. like... We won't do it. And, yeah. and, but my sort of frame of reference for that just feels totally different yep. in this very culturally relative way that, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, in American culture, like circumcising your kids is not that abnormal if they're male. Right. True. I think same sex marriage is also a really interesting issue of cultural relativism right now in that people see it as this very sort of cut and dry issue of equality in some places in the world. When it's really a relatively new thing almost everywhere, right? Like it it was relatively new in the Netherlands when that was the first country that passed it. In the U.S. it's, what, like fairly new, Mm -hmm. like a year since the Supreme Court decision. But there is the sense that for some people we've decided it's an issue of right and wrong. And once you've made that decision, like why not sort of promote it internationally? And I think that gets into a really tricky area for a lot of people who are doing LGBT activism globally you know, like how much do we push this and how much does it just sort of seem like an imposition from the outside on like really long entrenched sort of cultural norms in a place. Yeah. Super interesting. I I agree. I think it's really interesting. And even there's complications within the same sex marriage arguments, right? Because what made it so powerful and like made it work in America uh, is the kind of love is love argument. The idea that what, 
made it work here was the notion that it was no different from nuclear families in America as they stand, which fair, and I agree with that. But it also therefore pushes the idea that in order to have a legitimate love relationship, it needs to take that form. So it kind of not only like reinforces a certain model of like love and family that I'm like not 110% sure is like the best always. It then now seeks to export it as a global norm even more than it already is. Yeah. And that's a bit odd, right? Well, and you think about marriage norms internationally. I mean, they're not uniform. Like you think about like arranged marriage versus love marriage or the degrees of like cousin marriage, which is like very typical in some places. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like not at all typical in other places and would be seen as like, you know, a little too close. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Or like polygamy, you know, like that whether it's like outlawed by the state or not, like being widely practiced in a lot of places. And here that's the slippery slope argument with same-sex marriage where it was like, absolutely not. So this is all really complicated. Um, But even when aims are generally agreed to be good, so like, you know, say, say that everyone agreed that female genital mutilation was something that we just wanted to stop. Um, Like what about the problem of who gets to agitate to make these changes, Mm. right? Yeah, Totally. And this is, I think, where the, like, white savior piece of, of the discussion comes in, is I think there's often this perception that we have more leverage to sort of change things internationally than we do at home. And maybe that's because we're more familiar with, you know, the restraints on our action here at home and sort of think, if I go abroad, like, I can I can change all of this. And some of it, I think, has, uh, you know, it has, like, antecedents in colonialism and just the different power dynamics between the global north and south historically. So I think always of the Rudyard Kipling poem, The White Man's Burden, which is the sort of ode to imperialism that Teddy Roosevelt, like, forwarded on to Henry Cabot Lodge, saying, like, it's not great poetry, but I think it's, like, a great description of what we should be doing. (laughs) Um, And it's this poem about, like, you know, it's thankless work, but, like, we have to sort of, like, go about the work of imperialism to, like, raise the standards of living globally. And I think in a lot of ways, international activism at its worst can sort of replicate that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should have a real moment. I mean, that's what the Rhodes Scholarship in many ways was about. <laughs> right. Of which we are all recipients and a legacy we must live with, right? The yeah. The idea that like, these great minds from these great Anglo-Saxon countries of the world were going to raise the entire world's standards of living by all getting together and, like, drinking port in Oxford together and then going <laughs> forth and, like, improving the lot of the browns of the earth. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's, it's a real, this legacy is with us today. And I think something that, like, people in our community really struggle with, how to how to imagine and think about that. But I think all across different kinds of leadership or activist communities, it has to be something that people are are taking into account. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Sign sign me up. (laughs) I just want to say one thing about one of the communities of which I'm a part. So like I think about um, Muslim women advocating for equal space in mosques, for example, because like we always have to use the back entrance or the really crappy part of the mosque or just really basic, basic things. And it so matters who's trying to make the change and who agitates and what legitimacy they have in the community. I think I fall in the realm of like, being much more sympathetic and sympathetic to and supportive of and hopeful for the possibilities of change that's coming from like the people within, within the community who are like sterling credentialed all in kind of the traditional spaces, being able to make the biggest change, which is like 
put your stake somewhere when you make those choices. And that was probably not to bring this back to gay marriage, but like, you know, when you, when you look for plaintiffs or you look for people, you're looking for like the sterling people, no one can question. They're, they're all like perfect members of society, really capitalizing on the privilege you have to be able to make those changes. But I, in all the work I've done or things I've seen observed, it's a really powerful strategy. And I think I probably ascribe to, if I had to land on one versus the other and making, you know, change in my own communities, that's what I think of. That reminds me of um, this incident that happened in Pakistan when the Obama administration State Department was really sort of pushing LGBT rights internationally and wanted to show that it, you know, is LGBT friendly, takes LGBT rights really seriously. And so it started having these like pride, LGBT pride events um, at the different embassies and inviting Mm -hmm. local activists. And it was supposed to sort of show that the government was paying attention to these activists Mm -hmm. and didn't want anything to happen to the activists. And in some ways, it was this really welcome development. But in Pakistan, it, it was this like, sort of publicly billed event with all of these U.S. officials right. coming. And so it sort of pairs LGBT rights with the U.S. Yeah, like, like with the U.S. imperialism. <laughs> and so, you know, it set off like these waves of protests yeah. around the city, like really, and, and was really criticized by a lot of Pakistani activists as like, this is not helpful. No. Um, Aligning lo- yourselves with like, like, like if you're a, a country that's been like grappling with imperialism and the after effects of colonialism, and then someone comes in and is like, these are the best of the best of you. And it's like, oh my gosh. Even, I mean, you actually think about harm, physical harm. Yeah. Gathering people in the same place, identifying them publicly. You know, it's just, it's really, it can be dangerous. But yeah. It's also literally I, dangerous. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. So our takeaway is, uh, damn it. <laughs> if you're from the global north or a position of privilege and want to improve things in other parts of the world, Sometimes your position can mean that you end up inflicting as much harm as good. Cultural relativism tells us that our ideas about what's right and wrong may not make sense in other cultural contexts. And the legacy of colonialism makes it so that people from the global north can extend racial and national power imbalances, even when they're totally otherwise in sync with the local culture. At the same time, there is some pretty inhumane stuff going on out there. And it seems cruel for the global north not to use its power and leverage to help change that. Coming up, we will pick Ryan's super brain and use transnational LGBTIQ activism as a case study of how the struggle for human rights can go both in troubling and inspiring directions. What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mamas. I think the whole world's addicted to the drama, only attracted to things that'll bring the trauma. Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism, but we still got terrorists here living in the USA, the big CIA, the Bloods and the Crips and the KKK. But if you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate. Real quick, Ryan, can you just go over LGBTIQ and, you know, what it stands for and, like, you know, before we're going to, we've already been throwing it around a little bit, but we, you know, just kind of get us all on the same page. Yeah, totally. So LGBTIQ is um, one of the acronyms that's sort of used to describe um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people. And different people use different letters in that acronym to be more or less expansive, mm-hmm. but LGBTIQ sort of covers a lot of it. Nailed it. And can you, te- can you tell us a little about the actual state of international LGBTIQ rights, like, at the moment around the world? I know it's, like, a big thing. But. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> in so, a nutshell. <laughs> so... 
I think this is a really interesting time for LGBTIQ rights because a lot of intergovernmental bodies are sort of taking it up as like a, a real human rights concern. And I think governments are getting behind it in a way that they haven't in the past. So some of the statistics that usually get introduced about LGBTIQ rights internationally are things like how many states criminalize um, same-sex activity. So right now in 2016, there's 71 states or about 37% of UN states that still have laws prohibiting same-sex activity of some kind, whether it's just for men or for men and women. And that's to say nothing of things like transgender rights, intersex people's rights, um, non-discrimination protections, which exist in various forms in different places, things like partnership recognition. In all those different dimensions, there's sort of domestic movements that are that are working on those issues. Um, and then there's international efforts to sort of coordinate it. There's like cause for optimism in some areas. So I think a lot of states are doing really interesting work at like legal gender recognition. Um, and that's been led by countries in the global south. So Argentina has this like phenomenal gender recognition law where transgender people can have their identities legally recognized. Um, and that's been sort of modeled by other countries that are looking for best practices. And then there's also, I guess, cause for pessimism in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Russia has gotten like a lot harder for LGBT people over the last few years. And I think Indonesia right now is one example where the Supreme Court is considering whether theoretically parliament could criminalize same-sex activity, which is like a big step back for a place that's not had a criminal law and has been sort of celebrated for that. That's so disheartening. I mean, I know, I know you led with right now with, with things that are hopeful, but it's not even like you're not making progress in some places. It's like you're moving backwards, which, yeah, yeah that's really, really tough. Yeah. But sometimes coming out of those moments of grappling can enhance the forward moving process. If, if where you land is you're not going to go back. Totally, totally. Yeah. And so what's the international push? Cause you're talking about all these different isolated, or maybe coordinated in some cases, activist groups around the world. But what's this kind of, I guess the global north, especially what's their kind of response to all of this? Yeah. And I think that's one place where institutions in the global north can have a big impact abroad is funding and making mm. sure that activists have the resources to do this kind of work or sort of supported in, in doing the work. So there was just a new study that came out that said that in 2013 and 2014, LGBTI issues received about $424 million in institutional funding, like around the world, which is, you know, like 13 cents of every hundred dollars given to philanthropy. So it's, you know, globally like not a huge amount, but you know, it's, it's a lot of money in terms of just like dollars of all the money that sort of came out of that pot, about 51% of it went to activism in the U S um, and mm. so other regions, there's maybe not as much sort of sharing of resources, mm. even when the money could go a long way if it's like channeled to local groups that are doing work on the ground. Why do you think that is? I think in some senses, it's just because there's a culture of like philanthropy and fundraising around LGBT issues and around issues more generally in the U.S., um, where funding's coming from private donors, not necessarily states. And I think, you know, so much money has been poured into the marriage fight in like mm, 2013 right. and 2014 that, that that probably had a lot to do with it. That makes sense. So it just sounds in general, like there's stuff being done, but it's not equal in any way. And or I think there's a personal. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to think about, you know, sort of channeling more money to local groups because it takes money to sort of pay activists, to put on campaigns, to, to do the kind of work of influencing governments and making change. But I think... There's also like a, a dark side to money 
and and flooding money, sort of reinforcing this perception that activists are only in it for the money, that mm-hmm. this is all like U.S. funding that's trying to sort of override local cultural norms. And so fun, even funding and even like allocating equal funding, I think, raises like difficult tactical questions for activists. So like... Is there anywhere this is working? <laughs> I feel like we're just talking about so many difficult things that are, I think, really important to, to bear in mind. But are there is there any sign that this kind of work is helping internationally? Yeah, I think that there are, like, a couple examples that maybe are cause for optimism. Um, and a lot of them involve sort of really, like, global transnational cooperation. So it's not just, like, the U.S. telling people to do things or the U.N. telling people to do things, but it's activists from other countries sort of collaborating so I think legal gender recognition is one good example mm-hmm. where there's been a lot of like South-South collaboration um, and you see best practices getting spread around. One example that stands out for me is in Malawi, where in 2009, 2010, there's a couple that was arrested um, under the country's law criminalizing same-sex activity. It was a transgender woman and a man. And under a lot of pressure from the UN, the president ultimately pardoned them after they were convicted and basically said when he pardoned them, like, I got to do this because, like, the UN is making me, which is, you know, like, maybe not, like, the best victory, but it's, like, still a victory for that couple. And mm-hmm. um, I think showed that there is, like, an international voice that sort of speaks out when, when it sees injustice and that, that can make a real difference in certain situations. That's great. It is. Let's talk about Shatel. Let's talk about Gaza. Let's talk about, let's talk about. Ryan, like, what does winning some of these battles actually look like? And I guess, what are some of the unintended or intended costs that we know or don't know that come along with them? Yeah, totally. So I think one of the dangers of of winning some of these battles is that um, it sort of reinforces the other things that governments are doing. So a lot of activists have been critical of the way that Israel has sort of built itself as like like the only gay-friendly country in the Middle East mm-hmm. and pours a lot of money into like tourism campaigns sort of promoting that and seeing that as sort of legitimizing a lot of other things that the Israeli government does that maybe aren't as respectful as hu- of human rights. Um, so that's one example and it's called like pinkwashing is sort mm-hmm. of the name that it's been given, but of using positive gains in LGBT rights to sort of paper over other human rights issues that a country mm-hmm. might have. That's really what are some other places where I guess people point to as examples of pinkwashing? So, I mean, one that I always think of is in the United States, Mm -hmm. there was a vote at the United Nations in 2010 on extrajudicial killings. And there's this sort of standing resolution at the UN that says people shouldn't be extrajudicially killed, including on the basis of sexual orientation. And it was like one of the only places where sexual orientation was sort of mentioned at the UN. And this is going to sound like a dumb question, but extrajudicial killings, we're talking about like hate crimes? Yeah, or just like, you know, like the police or other people sort of killing people without due process. So not right. like the death penalty, but just right. killing people without consequence. And so a group of states moved to sort of pull out the reference to sexual orientation and it succeeded. And then the U.S. pushed really hard to have it reinserted. Mm-hmm. So there was this huge floor vote. It gets reinserted. So the resolution still includes sexual orientation. And then the U.S. abstains from the actual resolution oh because God. like 
it's not sure about sort of committing to like international human rights and humanitarian <laughs> law. And like there were rumors about like maybe it's because they don't want to be held accountable for drone strikes. But like they look really good for sort of reinserting sexual orientation yeah. into this resolution that like they then don't vote for. America. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's great. I mean, like that's not great, but that's a really tangible example. So that's great, Ryan. Thanks. <laughs> I think another example about sort of like gains being, or I guess campaigns being counterproductive, um, happened a few years ago in Jamaica where a bunch of people who had been in varying capacities, like working with Jamaican activists, were protesting sort of like the level of homophobic violence in Jamaica. And a bunch of U.S. activists were like, we're going to boycott like rum and red stripe beer and like any sort of like Jamaican liquor products. And so they launched this boycott in San Francisco. And the response by Jamaican activists was like, Red Stripe Beer actually has been kind of a partner of ours. And, like, for you to boycott them is, like, not helpful. And even within Jamaica, there's, like, differences of opinion about how effective the boycott was. But just the sense of, like, maybe check with us and, like, coordinate with us before, like, (laughs) launching a boycott of one of our partners. Oh, my gosh. That's so awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and this kind of lack of communication um, or lack of taking into account what's happening in a home country, I think is something that is really worth thinking about for anyone who wants to go into this kind of activism, whether you're writing about it or like on the ground. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I think about a lot is like the whole Lady Gaga born this way thing, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that like part of so much of the gay rights movement in America in the past decade or so has been around this notion that like, you know, you just can't help it. You're born this way, which like, for some people, it's extremely powerful to have that like notion of biology behind it, but that actually doesn't necessarily accord with a lot of, of ways of thinking about gender in other countries and even in America. Yeah, when there's sort of this push to have like every non-discrimination clause should include like sexual orientation and gender identity. Sexual orientation and gender identity are culturally specific ideas, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that like you're you know you're gay if you're like a man who like is sexually romantically attracted to another man. Um, and there's like, yeah, different models of sexuality, different models of gender around the world. And I think activists sort of see those as like enshrined in sexual orientation mm-hmm. and gender identity. But there is a question of like how well those those concepts translate for, for a lot of people around the world. You have some good examples of different models of gender identity? Yeah. So I think of like in the anthropological literature – where sexuality is concerned, you know, people talk about the like active versus versus passive dichotomy mm. in Latin America and this idea that um, there's this sort of gender difference between basically being like the insertive or receptive partner in sex mm-hmm. um, and that being like the relevant difference. You know, as long as you're sort of the active partner, you're still a man, where if you're the like receiving partner, then you're gay. And, mm-hmm. But you can be the active partner and not be gay. You can just be like a straight dude. And so, you know, that's, like, different from the way that, like, the U.S. sort of treats same-sex activity. Or, like, different sort of gendered subjectivities in Southeast Asia in particular. So you think of, like, hijras in India or, like, the bakla in the Philippines. Um, and this idea of someone who's sort of, you know, assigned male at birth but presents as very female, identifies as female, but would not, like, date necessarily, like, another hijra or another mm-hmm. bakla, you know, like sees himself very much as like a, a female and that would be akin to like lesbianism. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like these very different models that maybe don't sort of map onto the like born this way kind of 
LGBT identities. Yeah, and so then activism along those lines, if you like kind of export it, might just not make sense yeah, in totally. the country that you're kind of trying to send it to. Yeah, and you want to make sure that you're not like encouraging people to adopt identities that feel foreign to them and right. um, sort of shutting out people who don't identify as LGB or T mm-hmm. um, and sort of leaving space for, for different identities. I mean, I think at best it would just be like confusing. At worst, it could actually undermine other other things. Yeah, totally. Too. Yeah, like I, like, and also a lot of these are tend to be like longstanding cultural norms yeah. and traditions, right? right? So not necessarily. We often associate LGBTQI organizing with kind of modern or contemporary identities, but in fact, there are all of these kinds of much more nuanced gender understandings from like long cultural traditions and so our kind of contemporary attempt to shift things might actually be like really effing up things that have been going on for a long time in other places that other cultures might be very happy with yeah totally all right so we get it all our faves are problematic and then the question is how to negotiate this because there are people like Brian, for example, doing like amazing, important work. I, this is something I really thought about back when I was in college. I made this documentary um, about math and science teachers, American math and science teachers working together with Zambian ones, trying to come up with lab exercises that they could use with minimal lab equipment in both countries. So it was like a massively dorky endeavor, but I had a great time. We will, <laughs> we will link to the documentary if you'd like to see it. It's on the YouTubes. Yay. But you know, when I was, I was there shooting, I was very lucky to um, have a great documentary professor who gave me this book cross-cultural filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It was actually about um, ethno- ethnographic, anthrop- anthropological filmmaking. Oh, cool. um, yeah, and it was it was basically being immersed in theory around um, how do we deal with other cultures while we're trying to, like, describe, capture, talk about, um, or advocate for them. And for the film, there are, like, some really specific things you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to find out what this is in whatever field you're in, I think, yeah. is really important. So, like, in film, um, one of the big things to do um, would be, and what I try to do, is to kind of acknowledge my own position in the mm-hmm. film, to be like, yo, I'm an American, never been to Zambia before, I'm just going for a couple of weeks, and, like, trying to be clear that what I was seeing or presenting was, like, my view of it, mm-hmm. and not, like, the objective God-given truth about the state of education in Zambia. Like, I would do my very best to represent it as well as possible, but, like, it's just still going to be through my eyes. And then also, um, you know, to really try to balance the attention between the my voice and the voices of the American teachers to really put a lot of emphasis more on the voices of the Zambian teachers and students. So right. they had a ch- felt like they had a chance to really talk about what they wanted to talk about and for us to follow their stories mm-hmm. and not to really see it as, like, this magical adventure of Americans in Zambia. Maria, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's reminding me that one of pretty much the most life-changing things I've done in my, like, academic career was actually study feminist research methods in anthropology and really kind of taking taking from the same sort of mindsets about, like, understanding your position, communicating effectively and, and with a real grappling with the kind of power disparities that you perceive or don't even perceive with people you interact with. And... I did that when I did field work later on, but like actually I now work as a funder. Like it actually is, it's very, very relevant to how I communicate with grantees and other people around me. And so like, it's actually one of those spaces where like having exposure to like a kind of theory or mindset at a younger age, you, you kind of carry that with you. And it, I really, I think about it all the time, actually. Yeah, me too. I mean, this is like Dorky. clearly why we're doing this podcast, <laughs> right? We're like, theory has changed my life. Oh, yeah. So, but it's, I think it's really transformative. It can be. Yeah. 
And now I look for it because like there are things like in documentary filmmaking, things like whether or not you add your own soundtrack or if you only use existing music in the space um, is like a huge difference. And like, are you manipulating things emotionally or are you, you know, inflecting the feeling, but based on actual sounds that are in the space. And like, that's a huge difference in the kind of story you tell about a place. Sure. You know, before I read about it, I just like, well, whatever. If I watch documentary, just don't think about it. But now I always think But then you get into like the point, like what's the point of documentary? Like what's the end game? Is it? to like articulate an experience or is it to like do you, do you have your own agenda mm-hmm. like, policy or otherwise totally oh that's another yeah. another episode yeah. documentary <laughs> <laughs> so I think that like one of the the takeaways that I think LGBTIQ activists have been thinking about a lot is like going deep and going broad so this idea that like it's not enough to sort of only do advocacy in a country or like do research in a country or work with activists thinking about LGBTIQ issues. I think some of that is strategic. Like if other people in the country are worried about like load shedding or food shortages and you're just constantly like harping on LGBTIQ rights, maybe you come across as inauthentic, maybe you come across as sort of not caring about like the country and its people. And there's this great like Audre Lorde quote about there are no single issue struggles because people don't live single issue lives. And I think that's something that like is helpful to to keep in mind if you're like doing any sort of substantive work in a country is like like read about the country like mm. you know sort of think about the political context more broadly and not just like the one issue that brought you there so good oh my gosh All right, so I feel like we should just end with a list of things that people can kind of like go through in their minds if they want to be doing this kind of work for how to do it in, you know, the most sensitive way possible. Yeah, or responsible way. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, this is not going to be comprehensive. This is like our our personal brain list, but I think it's a good place to start. Totally. So we're not operating from the premise that you shouldn't try to work abroad or engage as like a global citizen outside of the U.S. if you're U.S.-based, but really seriously consider why you want want to go into international activism. And if you're satisfied with that answer, think about how you can build communities and resources to do this as sensitively and responsibly as possible so that you're not part of the problem. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think it's also helpful to be realistic about your own limitations and what you can actually offer. Um, This is like the Savior Barbie thing, right? Like, if you're not actually a teacher, like, be conscious of that. Um, But think about, like, you know, do you speak the language of the country that you're going to? Like, will you actually be going back later for any extended period of time or will you only be there kind of briefly I don't know like what's your skill set to actually give back if you have one or is it just like I have like hands and can sort of pitch in like as people instruct me to do yeah (laughs) Yeah. and then be willing to take those jobs yeah yeah Yeah, totally just digging a ditch right now (laughs) yeah And, you know, another thing is, you know, really thinking about fostering deep relationships with people in other countries, Mm -hmm. like really getting to know them and thinking about what they're interested in and what their needs are. And as a part of that, rethinking our, you know, your own position, not as a savior figure, but instead as a holder of privilege, fairly Mm -hmm. or unfairly, probably unfairly, and like trying to redress that through partnerships and service, right? So like in some ways it's like, okay, I acknowledge I have this privilege and through this work, how do I not kind of 
enact my privilege, but rather um, try to kind of pay back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's also great to think about focusing on local or national issues in your community or your home country as an alternative to international work. So over the last year, I've mostly been working on LGBT rights in the U.S. um, within sort of an international human rights organization. Um, And I think that's been like super helpful in the way that I think about doing global work and the way that I interact with other activists working on similar issues in other countries as sort of a like, hey, I'm also doing this work. Let's share some comparative examples instead of like, let me tell you how this should be done. Although I think, you know, like international, I think that doing this work nationally also raises some of the same problems, right? Like you can also be a white savior in your own country. And I think that is a whole other episode, but a lot of the same dynamics, like, you know, play out um, in the U S as well in terms of like the communities you're working with, like what privilege you bring to the work that you're doing. Totally. Well, you can project privilege in in any space at any, eventually we'll have like, we'll be talking about intergalactic privilege. Oh, yes. You've been watching deep space. Yeah, I know. (laughs) As I pointed out before, like, I don't think it means that you shouldn't engage or you should be so fearful that, you're just like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to implicate myself in this. I mean, that's my personal take because I've worked in so many spaces where people really don't do much to think about the broader world. Or if they do, they like write checks or something, but they're just really not thinking deeply. I think that's one point. Like, I think there is something good about the intention to wanting to want to make a difference. And that part of that is premised on the idea that we're not immutable. Like an experience can be transformative for you. That's not the only reason you should do it. And it's not all about you, but I've been changed by experiences. And I know other people have, and it's okay if that's part of what's happening. It can't be the only reason why you do something, but I've seen really powerful transformation and change in individuals who took that and used it elsewhere. And I just know there's so many life choices that don't involve caring about other people professionally or personally that when it happens, I can't help a little bit, but like be clapping inside of myself. Totally. For them. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and I think that there's some like amazing relationships that can come out of it. And I do believe in the power of like interpersonal friendships around the world. You know, yeah. there is something really profoundly important to think about people just like getting to know each other and like respecting each other and realizing that other people's stuff is real. I, I actually think that that's like the most powerful way to like make social progress is kind of interpersonal communication. You can state as many facts as you want. You can hate a whole big group of people. But once you meet and have a conversation with a friend I, that's why we have the Fulbright program mm-hmm. it's the mm-hmm. idea premised on like nurturing and cultivating goodwill through interpersonal exchange that's that's real it's it's very impactful yeah and I wouldn't want to see like the flip side right that's just like total isolationism like yeah. not my monkeys not my circus you know like withdrawing from <laughs> what is that <laughs> Please repeat. It's like a, it's like a phrase. Like, yeah, not yeah. my monkeys, not my circus. It's like, oh my god, I love you so much. Yeah, it's, it's gonna be my phrase pretty soon. Yeah, I love it. Um, th- there's enough of sort of like a like empathy deficit on a lot of issues, and I think of like the refugee crisis as one example of this. That like I think it is really hard to tell people like don't engage, like because it's really complicated. Uh, it's about like doing the hard work of sort of engaging responsibly. Exactly. Just. Just can't airlift your shit in. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find past episodes and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. We post updates and new content there and on Twitter too. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. Yes, be an in theory evangelist too. <laughs> in theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our intern, Liv Carlhawk, music composition and art design by the wonder miss Aaron Taylor Waldman. And super special thanks to our fabulous guest, Ryan Richard Thurston. Thanks for listening.